When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Live from Liverpool, The Dark Paranormal, Season 2. Hello, and welcome to the penultimate episode of Season 2 of The Dark Paranormal. I'd like to thank everyone for their continued communication regarding Season 2, and leave a gentle reminder that Season 3 will return to listener stories. Therefore, if you think you're sat on a story which has the potential to chill the bones, then please email it in to thedarkparanormalahotmail.com It would certainly be great if we could outdo Season 1 in terms of terrifying listener stories. You may well be thinking, how are we going to end Season 2? What stories are we going to look at over the last two episodes in order to sign off the series in style? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thanks to our listener Tony, all the way in Australia. Hi Tony. We're going to finish Season 2 by taking a look at one of the most famous, terrifying and hotly debated paranormal experiences in English history. I'm of course talking about nothing less than the haunting of Borley Rectory. Now before we get to Borley, I would like to say thank you as always to our Patreons. This is an independent podcast. As you can tell, we're currently not sponsored by anyone. And therefore, Patreon's donations really genuinely and truthfully, allow the show to continue. The sole reason you're listening to this right now is thanks to fans becoming a member of our Patreon. When you become a member of Patreon, you will receive early access to all of our shows and also get a personal thank you on a show just for you. And with that said, we'd like to say a big thank you to our newest Patreon, CC Jaden Armani, Thank you, Cece. If you'd like to become a Patreon, head over to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. We look at including more benefits just for our Patreon members as the seasons go from strength to strength. So, once again, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. I understand not everyone can become a Patreon at this time being, but if you like the show and you're unable to become a Patreon, just spread the word of the show. We're trying to grow, and anything you can do to help would really be appreciated. And so, with all that said, turn off the lights, suspend your disbelief, whilst we look at the haunting of Borley Rectory. Brother Michael, I have no joy to be with you today. 
of that I feel you should note. Yet, under the eyes of the Lord, the act committed by you, in league with the devil himself, cannot and must not go unpunished. The abbot looked around the courtyard. The men of this religious court, all with faces fixed upon the man, poised to drop and swing from the wooden structure built around the trunk of an old oak tree. We are in the 16th century, and Brother Michael, a monk at the Monastery of Borley, has been found guilty of having relations with a nun by the name of Sister Valerie from the adjacent convent. He had confessed he had indeed fallen in love with Valerie and that they planned to leave their vocations to elope together. Unfortunately for the doomed lovers, saving face was more important to the heads of the clergy than anything else. And for this apparent unforgivable betrayal to their religious vows, the ultimate punishment was passed down to the couple. The abbot gave a nod of his head, and Brother Michael, arms tied behind his back, was pushed from the temporary scaffold. A clear snapping sound, indicating the job had been completed. Now although it may be argued, death by hanging is a horrible way to go, Sister Valerie's punishment was not as quick. Her feet and hands bound, her mouth gagged, and tears rolling down her face, the Mother Superior uttered prayers of forgiveness as the assisting nuns picked Valerie up and placed her in a small nook in the walls of the convent. Then, the local stonemason, wearing a mask to hide his identity and trying not to look at Valerie, slowly laid the cement and placed the first stone. Then the next. Then the next. His masked face and the uttering of Mother Superior's prayers would be the last thing Valerie would see and hear, and as the final stone was placed, it removed the last remnant of light from the small nook. Outside, the Mother Superior thanked the stonemason and the nuns, and they all walked away, with Valerie bricked up alive behind the convent wall. There we go, Reverend, all finished. Please, accompany me inside. It's now 1862, and the relatively new Reverend of the Parish of Borley, Reverend Harry Dawson Ellis Bull, is being shown into his newly built rectory by the building foreman. This new rectory was built on the site of the former rectory, which had burned to the ground some 20 years earlier. That first rectory itself was stood on the site of another religious site, the long-since-forgotten Borley Monastery. It's fine work, said the Reverend, sterling work. And it was. Its Gothic architecture gave it an air of the stately, and, as requested by the Reverend, it had been much larger than the original rectory both symbolising the growing populace and the Reverend's family, he, his wife Mary, and their 14 children. Over the next few days, 
the Bull family would move their many belongings and family members into Borley Rectory. One day in his office room, Henry was working through the pay books for the completed building works when the bell in his room rang. Perhaps someone pulled it in error, he thought as he stopped and looked at the bell. There were currently no servants in place. But no, once more it rang. He could see the string pulling the mechanism. This was a new house and, in truth, Henry didn't really pay attention when the man had informed him about the calling arrangements. So he didn't know where the main cord pull was. And so, he followed the still-trembling wire across the wall, through the door, and out into the hall area. No one was there. Hello, he called out. But silence greeted him. It dawned on him his wife was out of town, and the children were all in school. So this sent a slight shiver down his spine. Not necessarily for ghosts or the likes, but in case an intruder had broken in. After checking the area, he decided to resume his bookkeeping, but not before unhooking the bell in his office. For an hour or more, he tirelessly ticked boxes and signed slips. His eyes now getting fatigued, he headed to the window to look out onto the estate. He could see the children coming up the drive from the school. One must have raced ahead, as he heard their footsteps running towards his office door. Not wanting to appear sluggish, he jumped in his chair, placed his glasses on his nose, and studied the nearest piece of paper intently. The footsteps stopped, just outside the door. Come, said Henry, expecting the person outside to be waiting for permission to enter. Come, he said again. Still no reply. He sighed and stood from his chair to head over to the door. Ring-a-ling-a-ling, the bell was ringing again. I thought I unhooked. Then he noticed the wire hanging on a hook next to the right of the bell. He had unhooked it. Ring-a-ling-a-ling. Henry moved to the door, keeping his eye on the bell at all times. Turning the door handle, he said, The strangest thing has just happened. I... There was no one at the door. He froze. He didn't know where to look or what to think. What had just happened? Was he overworked? Was it... Daddy? His smiling youngest daughter, Ethel, ran towards him, snapping him out of his stupor. Darling, how was school? He said, scooping her into his arms. It was lovely, she replied. I made a lot of friends. And did you know, there's a ghost here. The girls in school said it was responsible for burning down the last building that was here, she said merrily. Don't be silly, Ethel, said Henry. This is a new building, and I've already blessed the entire house, so there's no ghosties in here, he said with a reassuring smile. That reassurance would come back to bite Henry, as that night, as he read with his wife in the living room downstairs, 
there came a scream from Ethel's room. Running up to the child's bedroom, they found her shaking and cowering in the corner, holding her leg. Whatever's the matter, child? asked Mary as she came to Ethel's aid. But Ethel was inconsolable. Her hand stuck fast to her leg. Patience thinning, Henry forcibly removed Ethel's hand from her leg to reveal an adult-sized handprint. The type left after a vicious slap across the legs. Who done this? demanded Henry. He was many things, but he did not hit his children. Ethel eventually calmed down enough to get a few words out. No one. There was no one there, Daddy. Mary looked at Henry. What do you mean, Ethel? I... I was reading in bed, and something lifted my leg in the air with one hand and hit it with the other. I thought you said you couldn't see anyone, Ethel. I couldn't. That's just what it felt like. Mary took Ethel downstairs and made her a hot milky drink, whilst Henry checked on the other children, both to see if they were safe, but also to check if any of them had suddenly decided to attack their younger sister. However, they were all sleeping soundly. A nightmare, perhaps? said Henry to Mary later that evening. She did say school children were telling her ghost stories. But what about the handprint, Henry? asked Mary. Henry just cleared his throat and returned to his book. The following week was a hot one, and the older daughters would sit in the garden of an evening, taking in the dusk warmth. One particular evening, four of the daughters were sat in the garden talking about the events of that week, when Sarah, the eldest, noticed something in between them and the house appeared to be a figure. She called this to the attention of the other girls, who initially couldn't see what Sarah could, but Sarah was adamant. Then, as a cloud spread darkness across the lawn, accompanied by a slight chill in the air, the figure slowly filled out, and the girls all screamed in unison. As staring them down and pointing a finger right at them, stood a nun. Bedlam ensued in the house as the girls ran from room to room to get their parents and retell their story. But far from receiving the concern and compassion they imagined, Henry read them the riot act. You should be setting an example for young Ethel. She's already had her head turned by her classmates and now her own sisters are adding fuel to that fire. Sarah tried to interrupt. But father, it... I won't have any of it. You're all banned from the garden of an evening until I say otherwise. Henry was truly at a loss. But over the coming years, he would never acknowledge, or could never acknowledge, the sounds of voices in empty rooms, scratching noises from the walls, or the sound of running water he could never quite place. As for his daughters, well, they now didn't feel comfortable reporting what they were experiencing due to Henry's disbelief. Mary would try to not get involved in the conversation. She hadn't experienced much herself, 
and just wanted a nice, quiet, peaceful house. Her lack of experiences, however, wouldn't last long. As one evening, as she tended to Ethel, she heard the sound of carriage wheels crunching at speed up the driveway. Wondering just who could be arriving with such haste, she quickly made her way to the window. And now, she had no option but to believe. As there, speeding in circles outside her family home, was a horse-drawn carriage driven by two men, neither of which had a head. She screamed and fell back, drawing the attention of Henry, who came rushing to his wife's aid. She couldn't speak and just pointed to the window. Henry looked out, but of course, there was now nothing there. Let's have a quick break to talk to you about Policy Genius. Now, we all like to put off life insurance talk because it reminds us of our mortality. But life insurance isn't about death, it's about life. It's about ensuring the lives of those you love remain secure and comfortable. And I'm sure many of you will think, well, I'm covered through work or I'm covered through my bank account. But believe me, you want to check those finer details because you may be surprised what you're actually covered for. And this is exactly where Policy Genius come into their own. Yes, we could talk about how Policy Genius is America's leading online insurance marketplace or how their award-winning agents will walk you step by step through the entire process. But the best thing about Policy Genius for me is they don't have a dog in the fight. They're not going to strong arm you towards one company or another. They've no incentive to do so. Their only incentive is to listen to your needs, scour America's top companies, and find you the best price. For example, with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that begin at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options even offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. There's a reason why Policy Genius has thousands of five star reviews on Google and Trustpilot, and you'll find out what it is when you tick life insurance off your to do list with Policy Genius. So head over to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. The activity would continue in and out for over nearly 30 years of Henry Bull's residence until he passed away in 1892. At that point, the rectory passed over to his son, the Reverend Harry Foister Bull. The passing of the Borley torch did nothing to abate the hauntings, however. One day after moving in, his wife Emma casually asked, Is there a convent nearby? No, the nearest is over ten miles away. Why do you ask? replied Harry. Oh, nothing really. There was a nun walking through the gardens. Perhaps she's collecting for a charity. Perhaps, replied Harry although he couldn't help but recall his sister's sighting of the nun in the garden, the one his father steadfastly refused to believe. Sitting in the dining room one evening for supper, Harry leant across the table to reach for the salt, when he caught something moving in his periphery, a reflection in the large mirror which sat just above the fireplace. He focused in. Just over his right shoulder... Looking in through the window was a scowling, grey-faced nun. He spun around with such force he knocked his dish to the floor. A startled Emma asked, Whatever's the matter? 
but the now heavily panting Harry did not reply. He just stared out through the now empty window. He would catch this face at the window on numerous occasions, normally in the reflection of the mirror and then disappearing when he would turn to look, until eventually he had enough and he ordered the mirror to be removed and the window to be bricked up. He told Emma it was due to the glare of the low winter sun, but she knew what was going on. Won't she just look through a different window, she said. Harry fell silent. I see her too. She doesn't frighten me though. I feel as if she's in pain. Harry laughed. I've no idea what you're talking about, Emma. The glare and reflection causes me headaches, that's all. In truth, Harry Bull was an anxious wreck. He could barely sleep through fear. He genuinely believed the house was haunted by numerous spectres. He would lay awake listening to the sound of carriages arriving and leaving, only to look out of the window and see nothing. He could hear the faint idle chatter of several people coming from rooms he knew were empty. His doctor prescribed sedatives to calm his mood and anxiety, and things began to settle down. Or should I say, he became less aware of the activity. Almost in response to his new ambivalence, he soon encountered something he couldn't deny. Whilst walking his dog in the grounds of the rectory one late evening, his dog, in a very out-of-character manner, suddenly cowered and ran for cover next to a large sycamore tree. Bewildered, Harry walked over to calm the dog. When, as he crouched down, he saw the legs and feet of a well-dressed man on the other side of the hedge. Assuming it was an intruder, he stayed quiet and hidden, watching the legs slowly walk away to the right. When he felt it was safe to do so, he stood and peered over the hedge. He immediately regretted that decision, as, to his horror, he realised the intruder had no head. And it was walking towards a carriage that seemed to be made of smoke, climbing up into the seat and becoming one with the smoky image. From that day until his last, this phantom coach would be the biggest challenge to Harry's mental wellness. He felt it would taunt him. He would hear it approaching if he was on the pathway, turning just in time to feel the wind of this invisible carriage whoosh past him. It would wake him at all hours. The baying of horses leaking through the windows as he worked away in his office. The tormented Harry Foister Bull passed away in 1927. After this, Bawley Rectory stood empty for over a year whilst a new rector was found. The locals would report sightings of ghostly carriages entering and leaving the grounds of the now empty house. And, as a rule, the villagers of Bawley would avoid walking past the house at night, lest they be taken away by this phantom coach. A year later, in 1928, 
the Reverend Guy Eric Smith arrived to take over the rectory with his wife, Mabel. Not aware of any of the details of the alleged hauntings, the Smiths arrived with fresh eyes to the Gothic mansion. In the first week, as if a forebearer of things to come, Mabel was cleaning out some rooms and cupboards when she found, hidden in a small nook behind a wardrobe of one of the rooms, a small chest. Pulling it out and opening it, she found it contained a large ball of scrumpled brown paper. Or so she thought. Opening up the paper, she caught a glimpse of a grey, pumice-stone-type material and gave it a little knock. Hollow. On revealing the item in its entirety, she screamed and threw it onto the bed. Guy came in to see what the commotion was and found his wife, one hand to her mouth, the other pointing at what appeared to be a human skull on the bed. Guy managed to calm his wife by stating it might have just been a tool for an artist. It was commonplace at the time for people to use such things to train their eye to the features of the face. Well, as there was no other logical reasoning for its appearance, Mabel accepted this so she could remove the incident from her mind. And Guy agreed to give the skull a proper burial. Excuse me, shouted Mabel as she ran across the garden. Things have been great the last week or so, but whilst washing some clothes, she noticed someone heading across the lawn. Sorry, excuse me, that's a dead end, she shouted to the back of the figure. Stopping to catch her breath, she tried to make out just who was walking across her garden. The figure stopped with its back to her. Hello, shouted Mabel. The figure began, very slowly, step by step, walking backwards towards Mabel. This in itself seemed very unnatural, and Mabel immediately felt uneasy and began retreating herself. As the distance lessened between the two, Mabel could make out the habit of a nun. Hello, sister, she shouted out. The figure stopped. Mabel! It was Guy's voice. Mabel turned around and looked at him. What are you doing? Guy shouted. Mabel pointed towards the nun and turned back to her. But she was gone. Where could she have gone? This is a clear flat field, she thought. Finally, Guy caught up to her. Guy, she began. Something's not right with this place. Guy knew. Because the reason he'd come to find Mary was he was convinced she'd just been in the office due to the footsteps and knockings he'd just heard. However, entering the room, he found no one. He then seen her through the window on the lawn and came outside. I I think we're just getting used to the place, he muttered. However, over the forthcoming weeks, both Guy and Mabel would encounter a rise in activity. Staunchly refusing to believe the noises were of a paranormal origin, 
Guy took to carrying a walking stick with him everywhere he went in the house, just so he had something to attack any would-be assailant. Mabel would lie awake in bed of an evening, listening whilst a carriage would tear up the driveway. She'd stopped going to check at the window. She'd been there enough times to know that nothing would be outside. The servants' bells would ring in each of the rooms at the same time, despite no one being in service at the time. Like previous tenants, Reverend Guy would go around unhooking the bells from their wires, only to have them ring louder and longer in unison. Guy would catch sight of figures in the corner of his eye, running at speed up and down the corridor. His desk items would be moved, hidden away in locations he couldn't reach, or in areas he simply hadn't been. Meanwhile, Mabel's sighting of the ghostly nun increased in frequency. She could almost time the point every other day where the figure would materialise at the garden's end. Again, she'd stopped heading down there now, just to find it disappeared, and would now just stare back, terrified, into the eyes of the pale nun. One day, Mabel produced a letter to Guy as he headed into town. Post this. It's a letter to the Daily Mirror, asking them to put us in contact with the Society for Psychical Research. Guy reluctantly took the letter. He didn't want this. People coming to his home to peek and snoop. Then again, he didn't want to live here if the activity continued. After receiving the letter, the Daily Mirror, of course, thought it more important to send a reporter first. Haunting sell papers, and this could be huge. And so, a reporter arrived to document the story of Borley and provide daily reports back to the newspaper on what he experienced. Believing it would give the story more credence, the Mirror eventually acquiesced to the initial request and got in contact with the SPR on behalf of the Smiths. This act led to the arrival of arguably the most famous and polarising investigator in English paranormal history. On the 12th of June, 1929, Reverend Guy Smith answered the door to a man in a long overcoat, a trilby hat and holding a small leather briefcase. Reverend Smith, I take it, said the man. That's right, replied a defensive Smith. Pleasure to meet you, said the man tipping his hat. My name is Harry Price. And there we will take our leave of Borley Rectory for this episode. Next week we will complete the story of Borley Rectory, and indeed, Season 2. A big thank you to everyone who's communicated to me about Season 2 over the last few weeks. Don't forget your suggestions make this show. There have already been some amendments made off the back of your emails. So, again, if you have a thought on the show, or a story you wish to submit for the listener stories going into Season 3, email me at thedarkparanormal@hotmail.com. As ever, the slightly dramatised version of stories that I've tried to do in Season 2 has been just to give a bit of a flow to some of the stories you may already know bullet points about. Or if you're new to the paranormal, it should give you a rounded idea 
of what went on within that particular case. I'm not looking to convince anyone in the paranormal, but I am interested in what happens to us as people when we suspend that element of disbelief and get that chill down your spine and you don't feel alone or you wake up in the night because you hear a noise and your brain doesn't automatically tell you it's the house settling. It tells you it's a ghost. Why do we do that? I'd love to know. But before we get too philosophical about the subject, I hope you enjoy today's episode and you join me again next week for the conclusion of Baldy Rectory and indeed season two. As ever, thank you for taking your precious time to spend some time with me in the dark paranormal.